This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, October 17th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. Donald Trump rode to the White House on an America First platform. But turning that slogan into policy has made American foreign policy worse, even as many scholars have struggled to figure out exactly what even the slogan is supposed to mean. The new Cato book, Fuel to the Fire, How Trump Made America's Broken Foreign Policy Even Worse and How We Can Recover, details both the problems of and a way out of the incoherence of current U.S. foreign policy. Trevor Thrall and John Glazer are co-authors of the book. We spoke this week. There are a lot of people right now with respect to the the Syria situation and the U.S. de-escalation, shall we say, in northern Syria, who um, might otherwise have absolutely no interest in that situation at all, were it not for the fact that uh, this particular president has done it. Uh, can you speak to that at all? Well, I think the main problem is that uh, Trump uh, is allergic to the normal process of making policy. And so he kind of makes a disaster out of even relatively simple uh, policy shifts. Um, furthermore, his initial uh, announcement that he was going to withdraw or actually just relocate about 50 or 100 troops from the Syrian-Turkish border. He framed it in language uh, about ending endless wars and um, and that kind of thing. And yet that's that wasn't his policy. Um, and one of the reasons we wanted to write this book was to kind of set the record straight on that score because Trump sometimes adopts the language of restraint and non-intervention despite um, not actually carrying it out competently or even doing the exact opposite of what restraint would prescribe. Now, with respect to his predecessor, Barack Obama, uh, and this is just a sense that I have, and you can tell me whether uh, you think it's wrong or right. Uh, With Barack Obama, it seemed like he said a lot of the right things and then either did nothing or did the opposite of those things. Trump... Uh, on many occasions, seems like his actual, to the extent you can detect what it is, his actual gut impulse is correct and somehow is able to to make a mess of a lot of uh, these decisions with respect to foreign policy and, you know, other areas as well. But uh, is that correct? Yes. Trump has an evil genius for making even good ideas look bad. And in particular, even when he's doing exactly what the Obama administration, and to be fair, the Bush administration before that, uh, in terms of you know military intervention throughout the Middle East and, and around, um, he manages to talk about it in a way that makes people even more angry about it than they were before. So uh, you know, and and as John pointed out, he, he's actually also probably making things worse because of the way he does things, and the way he does things is so peculiar to Trump that it really did deserve a good chunk of our book to talk about why we think he does crazy things this way. Yeah. And I would caution a little bit the direct comparison to his predecessor. I mean, Obama was intelligent, learned, cerebral. I think he understood 
both cases for American primacy and engagement and for sort of a reduced security role for the US in the world. And he understood when he had to make the compromises as president or felt he had to make the compromises. He understood the contradictions in his own policy. And he tried to kind of um, accommodate that and, and, and deliver it to the public in a way that was palatable and, uh, you know, trying to please everyone in his cabinet at different times. Trump, on the other hand, as you said, it's really about gut. Uh, he's willing to frame an explanation for a policy in whatever he feels is most advantageous at that point. And he's not, it seems to me, fully aware of uh, the ideological and policy differences between the two schools of thought that this book kind of talks about, restraint versus primacy. So, uh in terms of the the Trump impulse uh, when it comes to war, it seemed like, at least on the campaign trail, he talked a lot about how uh, some of America's interventions were stupid uh, and bad and were executed by stupid people. Um, where have we seen the best of that impulse at work? Well, I'll say one. I'll give Trump one best there, which is he did not immediately order a uh, military retaliation against Iran after uh, the Saudi oil facilities were bombed. That was uh, certainly a prudent non-use of force, uh, and I think you know it's hard to know because these things are secret. It's hard to know what other things Trump didn't do that maybe his advisors, oh, I don't know, like John Bolton, might have been encouraging him to do. So you know, it's it's. Deeply ironic to imagine that Trump was ever the adult in the room uh, when, of course, the whole worry was that he was the child in the room. But I, I do think his gut instinct, as you said, was to not expand on what he now, just like Bernie and, and Elizabeth Warren, call endless wars. I mean, every other Trump tweet now is oh, endless wars, endless wars. Um, I think he has an instinct to stay out of these things, but like others, it's really hard to get out of them once you're into them. And the added tricky nuance to that is, of course, that. Um, the only reason Trump found himself in the position of having to decide whether or not to retaliate against Iran for the downing of a drone or to attack Iran in another case was because of his own policy, which ratcheted up tensions, imposed maximum pressure on Iran, you know, withdrew from a very effective nuclear deal, et cetera. Uh, so he's putting himself in a position uh, that is uh, exactly opposite of what restraint might prescribe. Well, let's talk about that for a little bit, because it, it does seem that there are have been many occasions where uh, this president, and I know you go into detail about some of these cases in, in the book, I'm thinking of Little Rocket Man, uh, Kim Jong-un, who uh, w between the president and uh, the leader of North Korea had a, a war of words that seemed extremely fraught and uh, troublesome, worrisome even. And then a, a year later, two years later, uh, these two are meeting. Donald Trump sets foot in North Korea momentarily. Uh, it's a great photo op. And uh, it seems that there are lots of situations like that where a not particularly favorable policy from the perspective of a libertarian foreign policy scholar created the situation that Donald Trump then successfully uh, sort of ex got himself out of. Yeah. And actually, that also doubles back on the first point we made because 
I think, I mean, I, I support diplomacy with North Korea. I also support kind of being very realistic about what's achievable. I think it makes sense to accept a North Korea with a nuclear weapon that is deterred as opposed to some kind of confrontation, whether over the table or uh, militarily. Um, but of course, Trump's implementation of diplomacy is all over the place and really shoddy and uh, potentially counterproductive. Um, he doesn't know how to actually do the granular uh, work that it takes to to come to a deal or get you know incentivize North Korea to reduce its uh, or, or or roll back its nuclear program, and so we're left with a lot of uh, uncertainty about the future of that of that policy. And it's only because of his inept implementation of it, not because he's wrong to want to do diplomacy. I think he's right to. Yeah, I think he's. By nature, and I think going all the way back through any of his business dealings, you'll see a tendency to do this very same thing, which is to uh, get in a mess with someone because of his intemperate approach to business or negotiation, what have you, um, and then uh, walk away with a terrible deal of some sort or no deal and simply declare success, declare victory, and rebrand himself even better than he you know, did the day before. And uh, you know the problem is uh, on foreign policy. You just sort of go down the list, and it's it's maximum pressure, the brand, but minimum impact, the results. I think when it comes to adversaries, who Trump decides, okay, I'm going to have to come to a deal with this with this entity. Uh, he he believes very strongly that uh, pressure, browbeating, and threats yields capitulation from the other side. There's very little evidence, in my opinion, of that things work that way all the time, uh, but he believes that very strongly. But that there's a, there's a bit of a contrast between those instances and other cases in which Trump decides, well, I really have no dog in this fight. I think he feels that way about Afghanistan and he feels that way about Syria, despite the fact that the first two years of his presidency, he actually uh, increased our involvement in those two wars. But he has this kind of Jacksonian tendency to want to get rid of or pull out of fights that he thinks are not worth it. But then he he has a very hawkish and uh, aggressive approach to things that he thinks is worth it. Let's talk about things that are worth it, like trade with the rest of the world. Uh, as Chris Preble, your co-author, uh, likes to say, trade is could be the most important foreign policy tool that we have. Uh, and it makes friends of enemies um, and raises the costs of attacking one another. So uh, with respect to trade and this president and in thinking of trade as a, as a foreign policy, as a diplomatic tool, uh, he seems to have not performed very well there either. No, not at all. He, you know, again, you know, he, where he has gotten involved, I think, unfortunately, you see his uh, sort of obsession with status and, and reputation, uh, getting him into positions where he needs to be tough, tougher than makes any sense in these negotiations because it's all about him and not about the actual results. And I think he's trapped in the trade war with China. He's trapped with the NAFTA rewrite. He's trapped having said no to TPP and other things. And and there's no positive for him in this situation. Isn't a lot of that though, the, uh, you know, the real estate uh, business person's uh, impulse to ask for everything and then accept whatever you were willing to accept to begin with. Only in this context, it seems like a lot of these countries are 
uh, well, better equipped to uh, engage in these kind of negotiations than uh, New York real estate uh, dealers. Well, Trump is very much driven by zero-sum transactional thinking. He thinks of the global economy as a fixed pie as opposed to an expanding sphere. Um, and he he very strongly believes that um, uh, our win means someone else's loss and vice versa. He doesn't understand that trade is actually mutually beneficial. Um, and so uh, he's brought that to his presidency. It conflicts with basically everything we know about economics. But nevertheless, um, he, that seems to be a belief of his that is unshakable. Yeah, and the tragedy with China in particular is that it's it's his obsession with the win loss with China on trade is is confounding many other foreign policy issues that we might want him to deal with. It makes things harder with North Korea. It makes things harder with Japan. It makes things harder with Europe. With Europe, you know, the the China's expansion is causing real concerns that we actually have to have real discussions about. But Trump's kind of bizarro, you know, trade war obsession has really just sort of blanketed all of that. There is, uh, you mentioned, uh, sort of, it's not a, there are no win wins uh, in a sense, and and trade is one example where the president has has behaved that way. But also with respect to defense, and you mentioned Europe uh, with NATO. Uh, you or Doug Bandau or Ted Galen Carpenter or Chris Preble would say NATO has outlived its usefulness. It's time for NATO to go. And you think that maybe when Donald Trump goes and talks bad about NATO, that that's going to be the next thing to come out of his mouth. But the next thing to come out of his mouth is you need to pay us. Yeah. Yeah, he's all over the place on this question. You're right that his zero-sum transactionalism uh, uh, spills over from the trade world into the security realm. Uh, he came into office saying NATO was obsolete, and then I think the, within the first couple of months, he announced it was no longer obsolete. Um, so he's he's actually deliberately undermined the credibility of our NATO commitment without uh, imposing or uh, putting in place a substantive revision to our commitment. So yes, uh, libertarians, uh, realists, uh, restrainers, we might argue that NATO is obsolete, that it makes sense to kind of back out of that um, uh, Cold War era alliance. Um, and there are responsible ways to do that over time. And Trump hasn't thought that far ahead. He just thinks these countries are taking advantage of us. And also, I think even worse than that is that he just doesn't care. I don't think he cares very much about foreign policy, and you know, no president cares equally about all the policy children in the in the house. But let's his level of indifference toward what happens in the rest of the world is pretty foundational to his person. And you think there could be upside to that, right? You know, sadly, I mean, it, with respect with respect to wars that aren't any of our business. If the foreign policy establishment, if the inertia weren't already in place, driving us forward, regardless of what he does, then sure, that would be great. But if the president doesn't make drastic efforts on the foreign policy scene, nothing will change. And so, unfortunately, you get the worst of both worlds. I mean, we've seen this on Syria and Afghanistan. Trump really pressed his cabinet. Why? Why are we still in Afghanistan? And uh, his his then Secretary of State James Mattis said, 
well, we're there in order to prevent a bomb going off in Times Square, some kind of fit of, uh, you know, a spasm of threat inflation that is absurd, frankly. And on Syria, uh, he announced in December 2018 that by February, uh, he wanted to fully withdraw from Syria. And that policy got almost 100% uh, turned around and reversed. Well, but but the announcement on Syria, the constant questioning on Afghanistan, it seems like he's hitting enormous headwind in any attempt to do what you and I would see as the right thing. There. Because the bureaucracy pushes back. And by the way, it's really important to make this distinction. When we talk about restraint in this book, we're referring to a grand strategy, you know, a picture of the US role in the world and what kind of things we're going to do. Um, not bombing Iran isn't quote unquote restraint. Uh, you know, a little bit withdrawing from Syria, again, that's not restraint. Restraint means taking advantage of the fact that we are extremely safe, we're geographically isolated, we're extremely powerful, and we're, we actually don't need to have the hyperactivist foreign policy that we have in order to be safe. Trump doesn't get that. And nor does he get the fact that when, when you do bother with the rest of the world, there are better ways to do it than military ways, and he doesn't know that either. With respect to uh, the United States' role in the world, you know, the 20th century was called the American century. Uh, to the extent that that is changing uh, or shifting, what has the U.S. foreign policy done to make that transition more swift, less swift? Uh, it, it seems like the United States is fighting in some ways an uphill battle uh, to continue to maintain that primacy and it seems like fighting it might make the problem of primacy worse. Yeah, I think the the number one indicator to follow if you want to track how American this century is is our share of global GDP, which you know topped out after World War II around fifty percent, <laughs> tremendous dominance, and now it's around fifteen, and you know going to hover around there, drop a little more over time, and um, you know that means we simply cannot be the kind of global policeman. Um, on every beat in every region, uh, you know, stopping every conflict before it starts that we might have imagined, which was false even when we were at 50% of the world's GDP, but it's really false today. And you're absolutely right, Caleb, that if we keep acting like decline is a choice, as some people like to say, we're going to get in way over our heads at some point. So with respect to recovering from uh the recent and current additions of fuel to the fire and uh, Donald Trump's continual breaking of our already broken foreign policy. What does recovery look like? Well, one of the things that I am willing to give Trump some credit for, even though uh, he didn't intend it this way, but uh, he's been such a disruption to American politics at the national level that along with what you just recognized, which is that the world has changed and we're no longer the predominant military power or economic power, um, the establishment is beginning to see that a change needs to come. Trump has sort of shaken loose the consensus, the bipartisan consensus on primacy and policing the world just because he's so he's such a disruptor. And I think it's prompted a debate 
in the elite as as well as the political class that uh, we need to kind of reformulate uh, our role in the world. And that's the debate we wanted to enter with this book. We don't need to return to the status quo ante, and we don't need to continue with Trump's version of America first or whatever it's called. What we need is a really radical reevaluation of America's role in the world. Yeah. And it needs to start with a less ambitious vision of American leadership that respects both our limits, but also the total failure that intervention and meddling tends to result in, whether it's military intervention or political intervention in another country. The second thing is it has to rebalance military and non-military tools of foreign policy. We need to do a lot. We have 800 bases around the world. We we have troops in 120 plus countries. We're actively bombing eight or 10 of them. Uh, We need to rebalance that. We need to rebuild our diplomacy and look for other means to get things done when they are important to get done. And the last thing that we talk about in the book is that, uh, you know, believe what you want about whether American exceptionalism was just a fantasy that we like to tell ourselves or whether there was something, uh, you know, super true about it. But but if the United States wants other countries to act uh, in, in a way that we feel comfortable with, then it would really be a great place to start if the United States would start following the rules. It was uh, refreshing in 2016 when Donald Trump was talking about Iraq being dumb and uh, a bad idea. And uh, this was went entirely against a whole lot of Republican orthodoxy and he won with it. And uh, I think a lot of Democrats have sort of taken that uh, at least as a rhetorical device to try to try to uh, amp up anti-war sentiment and anti-war sentiment, by the way, that seemed to have all but vanished in the eight years of Barack Obama's presidency. So uh, does that give you any kind of hope that uh, that rhetoric will turn into some sort of substantial decisions or this reevaluation that you're asking for? Yeah, I think Trump proved that you can still get elected president by saying things that are deeply at odds with the foreign policy establishment's preferences for U.S. foreign policy. Uh, Before 2016, I don't think anybody would have said that you could get elected by saying NATO's obsolete. That was a marginal view. It still is, but nevertheless, it's kind of opened the door for Democrats uh, to... um, debate among themselves what a new foreign policy should look like and uh, what it should be based on. And I'll just throw one last cloud of uh, pessimism over that uh, fine summary by John and and say that, um, you know, foreign policy doesn't tend to win elections. And so when we say that Trump got elected talking like such and such, it, it was not why he got elected. Uh, and Democrats, I think, are, are using Trump as kind of cover for rethinking things. But I think on the danger that I see is that their rethink may include on the positive side, ending endless wars. Um, But on the negative side or the danger side, both uh, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, uh, as well as Joe Biden, I mean, Joe Biden is just like going to the status quo ante, so that would not be good. But but Bernie and Elizabeth Warren are both uh, very ambitious when it comes to foreign policy. Not to start wars, I don't think they think, but they want to meddle, they want to reshape the world. And to me, it just sounds like a, a sort of a nightmare um, in a in a slight with a slightly different flavor, if you will, than than yeah. you know status quo. Ain't. That's another big theme of the book. The risk is that Trump's apparent dovishness on things like, for example, Russia, is prompting um, uh, 
the rest of the political class to say, well, to, be, since it's beneficial to us to be anti-Trump on the campaign trail, we will advocate a much stronger uh, and a more hostile posture towards countries like Russia. And so in some cases, it might be seen as politically beneficial to take the more aggressive approach, at least on those issues that Trump has seemed like a bit of a dove. Syria, just to bring it back, perfect example. No one thought arming the Kurds was working when Obama was the president. And now all of a sudden we're supposed to have a heart attack because we're going to stop playing with the Kurds. I, I, it makes no sense. And yet because Trump did it, all of a sudden, it's it, you have to, if you're a Democrat, you have to be pro Kurds. Yeah, the positions right yeah. now. Trevor Thrall and John Glazer are two of the co-authors of Fuel to the Fire: How Trump Made America's Broken Foreign Policy Even Worse and How We Can Recover. It's available now at Cato.org. <laughs>